HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. Today's program has been brought to you by S. Wallace Edwards & Sons, third-generation cure masters producing the country's best dry-cured and aged hams, bacon, and sausage. For more information, visit surreyfarms.com. I'm Dave Arnold, host of Cooking Issues. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to the food scene on HeritageRadioNetwork.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Across the table from Sean Brock, you're, you're so far away. <laughs> but I feel so much closer to you after reading this book. Amazing. Heritage. I mean, the heart, soul, the sweat that has gone into this book is, is tremendous. Yeah, you know, um, it took many years. And uh, I think... When you flip through the pages, you'll you'll see that you know this this is this wasn't something that we kind of threw together for the fun of it. You know, this was really an opportunity to um, try and do something with some significance and kind of you know show a part of my life that um, I've been very lucky to have. I mean, you don't have to open it up to see that. Just straight on the cover, your hands holding those gorgeous heirloom beans. It's so much more than just a visual thing. It's a visceral thing. You know, seeing the tattoos climb your arms, that kind of, you know, very sturdy, hard, slaty rock background. I mean, <laughs> that that says it all, almost as much as Coal Miner's Daughter. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, um, the cover is so important, and uh, we, we had a lot of ideas for it. And I'm, I'm so glad that um, people can see what we're trying to say, and that's, you know, those beans. And if you look at the cover, there's so many different varieties and each one of those beans has a particular story. It tells a story about a place, a family, or a moment in time. And that's really the kind of things that I chase. I mean, we could talk about Loretta Lynn, but I think I'm more interested in the story <laughs> of Hop and John. Tell me what that dish is and what it means to you. Well, that dish taught me uh, really the most important lesson of my career. And I say that because 
the first time that I had it, it was awful. It was absolutely inedible. It tasted of cardboard. And um, there was a reason for that. But at the time, I didn't know why. And um, once I found out why, then everything made sense. The world stopped. And the reason that that dish didn't taste good is this was the 90s, and nobody was growing Carolina gold rice. Nobody was growing African cow peas. And those dishes were being replicated with, you know, Uncle Ben's rice and terrible products that have no flavor. And that is, uh, that's an enormous problem. Um, and that was a, that was a huge problem then. And I think that a lot of people may have had that same experience with Southern food over the last 50 years. I mean, a lot of things have changed within the last 10, 12, 14 years, of course. But if you can't have the proper plants that have a very particular flavor, you can't have a cuisine. And I think, um, that was the lesson that I learned from, from eating that bowl of Hoppenjohn. I'll never forget the bowl that I had with Sea Island red peas and Carolina gold rice. It literally, like, the world stopped. I was like, I, I understand now. And so that's kind of the story of the book. You know, the idea is to, is to understand the importance of those kinds of things and, and how much they matter when they end up on the plate. And most importantly, I, I love your manifesto in this book. And what I keep coming back to is number one, which is cook with your soul. But first, get to know your soul. And let's talk about that backdrop of, you know, Wise County, Virginia, low country. What does it mean to you to be a Southerner? Well, over the years, um, I've really thought a lot about that. And, you know, when you, when you take it on as your duty as a human being to, to celebrate uh, culture and, and where you're from, you better know what you're talking about. And for me, the journey has been amazing because the more I research the South, uh, I research its folk art, its blues, its uh, rock and roll, its food, its literature, the more you realize how incredibly and insanely diverse it is. I mean, it's, it's insane. It's almost like trying to study Europe. Uh, you see these little pockets, these little micro-regions that... They have their own story. They have their own voice. They have their own food. They have their own accent. They have their own art. They have their own music. And and to me, that is extremely fascinating. And I'll spend the rest of my life studying that and trying to understand it. So once you realize how uh, amazing that is and how cool that is, then you realize how special the place that you come from is. And you start to look at it in a different way with a different kind of respect. And, and, and you know, that's what I've been doing recently is, is over the last 10, 15 years, uh, you know, I've, I've taken this place that I tried my hardest to get out of, you know, Wise County, Virginia, the coal fields. It's very, um, depressing there. I mean, if you've seen coal miners daughter, that's essentially the landscape there. Um, but you know, sometimes you have to go away, uh, to realize how special it is. And, and that's exactly what happened to me. I went away. And I went to the Low Country and discovered this amazing place um, with this amazing cuisine and, you know, life on the ocean. And it was incredible. But it wasn't until then that 
I would start to tell like cooks in the kitchen, like, you know, we eat pawpaws and we eat all these crazy things. And they'd never heard of any of this stuff, leather britches and these crazy uh, dishes that I grew up with that no one had ever heard of. So for me to be able to share that in this book is, is so cool. I remember I, I was just down in Louisville, Kentucky and picked up a box of pawpaws at the local market and smelling them, you know, they're familiar because they kind of got that like guava banana thing. It's so tropical. Yeah. But I know you've taken a trip to West Africa. And I know there are those tropical flavors there. And you met a very interesting sect of people that had a profound effect on your life. Tell me about that. Well, um, I'm a very obsessive person. And um, when I get like excited about something... I take it way too far. Um, <laughs> you should see my baseball card collection. You should see my vinyl collection, my guitar collection. Like, I in my seed collection, I I, col- I collect things, and I'm, I I become obsessed with gathering things. And so, when I tried to have the fullest understanding possible of low country cuisine, I knew that I had to go to West Africa. I knew that I I had to go there and see firsthand and taste firsthand where it all came from and, and where it started and, and, and the roots of it all. And when I went there, um, it was, it was, you know, it was good and bad. Like I, I saw things that I wanted to see, but I also was very surprised. Um, you what, know, what were you going there to see? I mean, what, what was that mind's eye and how far off were you? I wanted to see, um, where that depth of soul came from in those dishes that, we try and replicate in the South and we try and cook every day in the South. And, and I wanted to see, um, uh, rice. I wanted to see true Senegalese rice in kitchens, in restaurants, on the plate. And I wanted to see what people were doing with it. And what's crazy is when I went there, no one was using Senegalese rice. Everyone was using, um, Asian rice and I was so confused. I literally had to um, search and search and search to find um, uh, West African rice. And I left extremely confused because that was really one of the main purposes of the trip was to taste that there and experience those dishes. And I, would, I just couldn't understand why. And so I went back again for a second time. And on the plane ride there, um, I was doing some research and reading and it turns out exactly what happened to Southern food from 1930 to 2000 is happening in West Africa right now. No one's growing this stuff um, for many reasons. Um, you know, 5% of the land, the cultivated land there is irrigated. You know, they're, they're only able to produce 30% of the rice consumed as a country. That's insane. You know, that's not their fault. And, and the same thing was happening in the South. So I felt relieved that we weren't the only ones that were that we're going down that road, but now um, it's a completely different story. There are people there like Glenn Roberts who are really trying their best to, to, to repatriate those land race varietals of rice and cowpeas and things, and it's it's cool to see that happening there just like it happened in the South recently. I mean, you're, you're a man of preserving tradition, saving seeds, um, you know, and it must have been odd to see something that the South and you personally had gone through happen there how, how do you prevent that from happening again in the south well i think um the 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 biggest thing and the most important thing 
that we can do is to raise awareness. And, and as chefs, we have an incredible opportunity to do that through a plate of food. Um, and the front, of, the front of the house, the servers, the maitre d's, the sommeliers, they also have that opportunity to tell that story when someone's eating. And I think if we can get the right ingredients into our kitchen, which is a tremendous amount of work uh, in, in the first place, but if we can get the right ingredients in the kitchen, we can get them on the plate, then we can look at it as this platform, this platform to teach people to raise awareness and to show people that this is what they're supposed to be eating because this is the food that belongs here. I mean, let's talk about something as simple as cornbread. You have Anson Mills. You have a whole bunch of different grists down, you know, in low country. But how does a dish like that make people aware of what it actually symbolizes? Oh, Lord, there's a lot of bad cornbread out there. (laughs) I mean, there's a lot of bad cornbread out there. And and for some reason, everybody... uh, dumps a load of sugar in there and they use flavorless cornmeal and 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 just like hoppin john it gets a bad rap like nobody respects cornbread but if you make cornbread with incredible buttermilk with incredible cornmeal with incredible eggs and you cook it with care in a black skillet in a raging hot oven with a little bit of bacon fat when that hits the table and people sink their teeth into that their eyes just brighten up and like that that's that's the power of food and that's that's what's so important about the 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 journey that we're that we're taking in the south right now is to to, we're reintroducing people to things that they've had so that we can have them taste it again for the first time you know it's funny there there's that saying about there's not really any bad pizza you know That, that that it's almost impossible to have bad pizza and i sometimes feel that way about fried chicken that you know i've had a good amount of fried chicken. I've had exemplary stuff, but it always feels like this dish that people are satisfied with no matter what. What makes yours so special, both technique and tradition? You know, um, people say, uh, um, what's the phrase that cracks me up every time? It's like, you know, there's no such thing as bad pizza. It's kind of like sex, you know, like (laughs) pizza, sex, as long as you're having it, it's pretty awesome. (laughs) Um, but I happen to disagree. <laughs> <laughs> About which part of it? The pizza? <laughs> All of it, because I don't know. I mean, that's just a lame excuse. Um, you know, the thing, the thing is, is there's, there's a particular type of person that wants the best and, and thrives on that and, like, you know, runs toward that finish line. And, like, you seek that out and becomes part of who you are as a person and, like, you'll taste that on the plate and, and it goes for pizza. It goes for sex. It goes for <laughs> cornbread, <laughs> all the above. All you have to do is try. Thanks. So we're going to take a quick break. And of course <laughs> <laughs> we're not going to forget to talk about barbecue, smoke pits and Pappy Van Winkle. You've been <laughs> listening to the food scene on heritage radio network.org. We'll be right back. following program was brought to you by s wallace edwards and sons edwards suriano hams are aged to perfection for no less than 400 days and hickory smoked to achieve a deep mahogany color the edwards name is well known 
for its world-class aged and cured meats. Their exclusive curing and aging recipe produces a unique flavor profile that enhances the quality characteristics of Berkshire pork. Optimum amounts of pure white fat marbling contribute to a flavor that's a delicate, perfect balance between sweet and salty. For more information, visit edwardsvaham.com. How appropriate that Edwards VA Ham is sponsoring <laughs> this show. One of my favorites. Because, you know, to talk about barbecue, to talk about smoke, to talk about work in the pit, you have to talk about the meat. And, you know, we, we, were, we were just joking about fried chicken, but there's also bad barbecue. Oh, my God. There's way more bad barbecue than there is good barbecue. Um, and it didn't used to be that way. Um, and there, and there, I think there are many reasons for that. But again, you know, it's it's going back to preserving a tradition and doing things the same way the generations before you did it and uh, doing it with respect and doing it with care. And barbecue is a perfect example of that. If you start thinking about the best barbecue you've ever had, most of the time it's cooked by someone who was taught for multiple generations, someone who does it every day for a living. And that's that's a dying art, you know, and it's kind of sad. I mean, but let's talk about the meat, too, because... Heritage breeds, you know, us here at Heritage Radio, Heritage Foods USA, care so much about that. Yeah. (laughs) And it it only only seems right that you're here to preach the same gospel that we do. And from lamb to Osbaugh hogs, guinea hogs, the piney wood cattle that you use, I mean, that quality and supporting those farmers are intrinsic in making good barbecue. Or making better barbecue. Yeah, and it's it's you know it's 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 multidimensional. It's it's obviously the breed, um, just like a seed varietal. Certain breeds and certain plant varietals just simply taste better. It's just the way God made it. But also, it's how and and who raises that product. You know, if it's if it's not raised properly, then it doesn't matter. I I, I was. Glenn Roberts told me something once. He said, you can take this Indiana Jones journey and find the rarest seed that the South has ever seen, but if you grow it in shit dirt, then it's not going to taste like anything. You know, it's going to be um, it's going to be pointless. And the same thing is with, uh, happens with animals. If you don't raise them properly and make sure that they're happy and they're fed properly and they have sunlight and, like, they get to live their lives as they're supposed to, it's not going to be good. And again, that's the way things used to be, and 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 today we're getting back to that, and that just brings me an incredible amount of joy. So you are deeply rooted in, in, in you know, southern traditions as far as going out for you know certain meals, certain foods at certain times of year. But at your restaurant, you serve elements of all these things on a plate. Maybe it's not the most, um, you know, it's not the traditional version that you'd see on a plate, but it takes tradition. And gives it a twist. So let's talk about barbecue. What kind of barbecue traditions have you brought to restaurants like McCready's, Husk, even Monero? Well, I think what's cool about it is if you get down to the core, like the the, the bare elements and essentials, you'll understand what makes barbecue special. And it's it's this emotion that comes along with the smell of smoke and uh, just that whole idea of something taking forever and and something that has to be done by an expert. And I think that's really kind of a Southern way of looking at, at life, you know. Um, so for us, everything we do, we want it to have those elements. We want it to create that same emotion, you know, the idea of 
of bringing back memories to create nostalgia. Like that's cooking, that's food, that's dining, that's everything to me. And, and barbecue is a perfect example. You know, if you, if you try and study barbecue, it's pretty amazing. Like, you know, you go to South Carolina, you go to North Carolina, you go to Georgia, you go to Alabama. It's all barbecue, but it's all completely different. And there are reasons for that. And geography has a lot to do with that. So, for instance, in Tennessee, if you're having barbecue, it's going to taste different because people use hickory there. If you have it in South Carolina, it's going to taste different because people use white oak there. Because that, those are the trees that are abundant. But those are the flavors and smells that get stuck into your brain when you're a little kid. When you go to a barbecue place when you're a little kid with your with your grandpa and like that smell hits you. And, the, and what's neat about it is... White oak doesn't smell like hickory, and hickory doesn't smell like mesquite. And like, so it's a, it's a really deeply personal thing. And I think if you can look at that and understand it and use that as a way to just approach food in general, then you can create special, special stuff. So I'm, I'm a big seafood advocate, aquaculture, and you know, using lesser-known fish to be able to help propagate fish that we've either overfished or you know, just make the water and ecology better and you you said using what's around you and what i found amazing are the fish that you talk about in there wreckfish triggerfish amberjack sheep's head shrimp and even sea urchin which i didn't even know charles from south carolina had well what's neat is um these days uh, we're able to cook a lot of these what to a lot of people are strange species of 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 seafood uh and people trust us now because you know, as chefs, it kind of came out of necessity. We were overfishing. We were fishing. We were catching too much grouper and snapper and tuna, which is what the public demanded. So that's what we gave them. And now, all of a sudden, that's not around. And, that, and, and that's great because now we're, we're being introduced, even as chefs and not just consumers, being introduced to these new species of fish that actually taste better than the ones that we've all been used to eating and cooking. Like for instance, um, triggerfish. Like that is a crazy fish. Um, it just it dines on shellfish all the time, and that's what it tastes like. It's like eating this fish that tastes like crab. And if you know those things hadn't happened, the overfishing hadn't happened, we would have never been able to discover that and taste it and and, and share it with people. And to me, that's just a, another cool part of the journey. So, how do you introduce triggerfish to someone that hasn't eaten it? Do you do you introduce it as almost a crab? you know, a touffee dish, or where do you come from when you conceptualize? Yeah, exactly. You, you, you almost treat it like crab, and you, you take um, traditional crab dishes, and, and you use triggerfish, and you talk about that. And then what that does is it opens up a discussion at the table about the diet of the fish. And, like, once you start thinking in that direction, the food is just going to be more delicious, and it's going to have more meaning, and it's just going to be special. Another thing you mentioned is people demanding, you know, that they wanted something from you or from the restaurant, do you still feed the people in that same way or do you change their perception of what they want? Oh, I think it's a completely different world these days. Um, I think people are coming to restaurants to learn. Uh, and it wasn't that way 10 years ago. It wasn't that way even six, seven years ago. And, and now people are coming to restaurants for new experiences, for new discoveries, for new flavors, for new things which is cool because that puts a lot more pressure on us as chefs and as restaurateurs. It's like we have to keep pushing. We have to keep finding things um, to keep entertaining people. And so 
it's great to see it go in the opposite direction. I mean, let's talk about recipes in this book because there are a few. There's a lot going on <laughs> in here. And I know we're talking more about the philosophical side of this book, which is certainly present. But if I was cooking from this book, which are the best ones to learn from, from a technique standpoint, and also from a much deeper place? Oh, wow. That's like asking me to pick my favorite kid. <laughs> um, Don't say it all. favorite child. All of them. Um, well, you know... Every single recipe in that book was put in there for a reason, and um, and it was to to teach, and it was to to uh, show something. And I think if you can look at each recipe and understand that, then you can absorb it in a different way. I mean, even like the the preserving chapter, the pickling chapter, that's so cool. I mean, there's some some great recipes recipes in there, but. I want it to get people moving in that direction. It's like, you know, think ahead, preserve, build your pantry up. But then the way the book's broken up is is really neat. You have, you know, a, a waterway section. You have a pasture section. You have um, uh, the section that's just dedicated on uh, the work that Glenn Roberts is doing. And, and, and I think all of those recipes are, are, are special. But I think if I had to pick one recipe that... Um, kind of proves the point, it would definitely be the cornbread. Um, because, you know, as we said earlier, there's so much bad cornbread out there. If you take that recipe and you go find the best buttermilk and you find the best ingredients and you make that cornbread, then then hopefully you'll have that same moment that I had when I tasted Hop and John with the real ingredients. And then you'll be able to look at all the recipes in the book and see kind of that's the direction, that's the mindset, that's the thought. And hopefully uh, you'll be inspired. I know you changed the way that you fry chicken from when you started this book to now. What changed? Well, um, (laughs) I've been 100% obsessed with the perfect fried chicken my entire life. Um, Searching it out, eating it, finding it, cooking it, um, creating it. And that'll never end. Um, I'll constantly be chasing that i'll constantly be changing the way i fry chicken but i think the recipe in the book has two really important things that probably will never change um in the way i fry chicken and that's the use of a flavored fat i think that's really important all the recipes that i read from the 19th century they would take a piece of uh fat back or salt pork and flavor the fat and then fry the chicken adding this incredible umami and um, uh, just the idea of adding a little bit of cornmeal to the breading is something that I grew up with. That's how my mom makes it. So, you know, they're, they're, the fried chicken recipe is always going to change, period. That's just my life. Um, but I think the one in the book is, to me, if I had to pick one way to, to, to set it in stone and never change it, I think that's that, that, that recipe. As far as ingredients go, I mean, is it bene seeds? Is it sorghum? Is it buttermilk? What do you think people can take away the most from, you know, actually cooking with? Well, it's all those things, but I think um, more importantly, it's where they come from and getting to know the person that produces it. When you form a relationship with someone that raises food, uh, you inherently respect it in a completely different way. If you have a relationship with the person that provides you eggs, the eggs that you eat every morning for breakfast, 
if you go there and watch the incredible amount of hard work that goes into it, when you put those eggs in the pan, you're going to cook them a little bit slower. You're going to cook them with a little bit more care. And you're going to take more pride when they hit the plate. When you eat them, you're going to have a completely different experience. You're going to enjoy them in a way that you've never enjoyed food. And I think, to me, that's what I want people to take away from this book. Do you sip Pappy Van Winkle slower now that you know Julian? <laughs> well, um, I'm pretty obsessed with that stuff. Um, and, yeah, it's one of those things where exactly what I was just saying. When, when you know the rarity of something, you know the importance of something, if you can have a true understanding of the beauty, when you consume it, you do it as slow as possible. And, 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 and you know, drinking his bourbon is a, is, a, is a very, very special treat. And, yeah, I sip that stuff for as long as I can. <laughs> What's in the Julian cocktail? I mean, it's such a gracious ode to, to that man, to that family. Yeah, I mean it's a cool cocktail that he um that he taught me um at his home and uh it's just to me what I love about that drink is it's it's a bourbon lovers cocktail which is crazy because a lot of bourbon lovers won't drink cocktails they drink whiskey in a glass. Um but I think that's what's cool about that recipe is it's almost the same way that we approach a beautiful ingredient on the plate. It's like what is the minim, minimal amount of things that we can add to this just to bring out a couple new things. And that's what's so cool about that cocktail. It's got just enough bitters. It's got just enough acid. And, like, it just it just it, it creates a different experience while not taking away from the beauty of the natural product. Well, there's nothing minimal about this book. I mean, carrying this around <laughs> is a workout, which I am happy to take. 3.7 pounds. Just, <laughs> it's like a proud new child. <laughs> How how big? What are the specs on its size? And you know, uh, yeah, I think it's like uh, almost four pounds. Um, <laughs> uh, I think it's eleven inches. Yeah, um, it's you know, honestly, I wish it was ten times that size, but um, that's <laughs> that's not practical for anybody. Yeah. Well, I mean, you um, talked about this barbecue approach to food, but I think you did the same thing with this book. Um, a lot of people were waiting for it to come out. A lot of people were very excited. But you, you not only took your time, but, you know, you took yourself out of what the public wanted and made sure it's what you wanted and what you wanted to deliver. So that, that is a huge, huge accomplishment. I appreciate that. You know, it's been uh, one of the most amazing things I've ever done. And today is a crazy day. Today, the world gets to see it. And uh, I'll, I'll never forget this day. And uh, it's just so cool to be here hanging out and Watching you flip through it and talking about it is just now all of a sudden uh, I realize that I wrote a book. Yeah. Well, it's real. <laughs> it's out there. And I'm glad that we got to experience this with you, Sean. Everyone should pick up Heritage as soon as possible, but even more so visit the man behind the book and the food that's in the book and the farmers and the people that inspired him. Thank you again for being oh, on man, the food thank scene. You. You've been listening to the food scene on Heritage Radio Network.org. I'm your host, Michael Harlan Turkel. Hoping to have you back here next Tuesday at 3. Cheers. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. 
Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 non-profit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening.